The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. Today's episode of From the Silo is a Words Matter episode coming from July 2022 and features a conversation between Norman Kavita on the Republican Party's embrace of fringe ideologies. We hope you find this conversation as topical today as it was then. Please enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. There is no vaccine around. And Dr. Kavita Patel. But I bet you, you didn't know that. Most clinicians do not know that. And that's a problem. Hello, and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, we actually have an action-filled episode with some of our favorite clips from some of the leading Republican candidates at various levels, lieutenant governor, Senate, fringe candidates in Congress, who no longer seem like they are on the fringe, and in fact, have emerged as either frontrunners or incredibly incredibly resistant threats to any counter from a moderate Republican or any Democrat whatsoever. Norm and I will try to break down some of the words that are coming out of candidates' mouths and try to understand exactly where this fits in the Democratic debate, as well as our fight for justice on so many levels. Here are a few clips from a candidate for Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota, Matt Burke, actually a longtime Minnesota Viking fan, and he's a former football player. But here he is talking at the Right to Life convention. Our culture loudly, but also stealthily promotes abortion. You know, telling women they should look a certain way, they should have careers, all these things. Again, rape is obviously a horrible thing, but an abortion is not going to, it's not going to heal the wounds of that. One of the arguments that I've probably saw 20 times online today was, uh, was about rape. And, you know, obviously, you know, they always want to go to the rape card. They said, well, abortion's legal, you know, and it was kind of an easy out for a lot of people that didn't really want to engage. Well, it's, it's legal, you know, just, um, you know, a lot of things have been legal before that we've changed. Right. And we always hear about the, the, I'm sure you've heard, I know I'm talking to a bunch of pro-life warriors here. Uh, you know, slavery used to be legal, right? which is an interesting comparison to make because really the way that uh, the other side treats an unborn child is basically like that that unborn child is, is the property uh, of, of the mother. It is a measure of the extremes that we're seeing in the aftermath of Dobbs on the abortion issue. 
But Matt Burke is not alone in this. In fact, he is not an outlier at all. The reality is that we're seeing candidates all across the country, candidates endorsed not just by Donald Trump, but by other prominent leaders of the Republican Party, joining a whole lot of current members of Congress, of state legislatures, candidates for governor and governors themselves, who are taking positions that a decade ago, two decades ago, would have been condemned by the party and would have been viewed as wildly extreme. And now they are the norm and not the exception. Norm, it goes even further than that. It's disturbing because this wasn't a surprise reaction for many of these candidates. This is something after the Supreme Court decision, this is something that they have been beating a drum about, not just even since Donald Trump. I think that's one of the problems that we see is that we, as much as I would like to attribute it all to Trump, this is just a growing virus within the GOP where they have now taken what they had originally used in the kind of quiet rooms and with like a smaller group of supporters, blasted out and the Supreme Court gave them a platform for it. Definitely so. But you know, what I find troubling in particular and interesting on this issue to start with, Kavita, is that if you go back even a few years, the mantra was, we would like to see Roe overturned, but of course, exceptions for incest, rape, the life of the mother. In Idaho, the Republican Party had its convention where they were setting up their platform last week, and somebody offered a resolution that would exempt abortions in the case of the life of the mother, not the health of the mother, the life of the mother. It failed by just about four to one. So they have a platform now that says all abortions are murder. They criminalize abortions and exclude exemptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. The Texas Republican Party did that, along with rejecting the results of the 2020 election, said that being gay is abnormal, vowed to protect access to all guns at all times. And it basically is now acceptable to take positions that we would have seen as extreme. This is unusual, to say the least. And it's a reflection of the fact that we no longer have two political parties and we don't have a political party that meets any of the norms that we've expected in our democracy. And we're seeing this spread like wildfire across the country. I would just note that. We had primaries in Maryland. Maryland, of course, is a pretty liberal state. The Republican Party in the past, at least a lot of it, was relatively moderate. They've had an extremely popular governor, Larry Hogan Jr. And Larry Hogan Jr.'s choice to succeed him was basically thumped by a Trumpist radical who is now the nominee in a liberal state to be governor. This is happening in parties, even in those states that have had a history of relative moderation. I'm a Maryland resident, and I was actually quite pleased to see the Democratic primary candidates, Wes Moore and Aruna Miller for lieutenant governor, kind of come to the front, because I think it's going to take candidates like Wes and Aruna to take on what, what the Democratic Party stands for, how they are going to work for the people. And to not rest on kind of these old party laurels, that's why I think Tom Perez did not 
even have much of a chance despite amassing quite a bit of money. But let me even go back to Burke since it's not lost on me that he is on the ticket, since we're talking about lieutenant governors, with a GOP-endorsed candidate, Scott Jensen, who happens to be a physician, licensed physician in Minnesota. And he's actually been investigated. What's publicly known is that he's been investigated by the state's medical board five times separately for different allegations of what I'll call medical quackery. Him and Burke with their misogynistic disarray that's just dirty and messy. And like you said, put can put hair on your head. It's not just that it's troubling what he talks about, like, oh, people want to use the rape card and what he, they really think of women. But it feels norm like these are the conversations going back that they want to say out loud. These are the things they felt in their heart and they're saying out loud and they're getting an audience for it, getting support for it, raising money for it. And as we look to 2022 midterms, 2024. I'm just deeply troubled. And and, uh, we'll talk later in our member segment about a potential Republican that can buck that trend, O'Day, who's up for the Senate Republican nominee in the state of Colorado. But this is a dark point for the GOP. And if I'm sitting as a moderate Republican, which is a majority of Republicans we know from polling, Norm, what is the implication that some of these people will go forward? That Matt Burke and, and and many people in houses, districts, counties. What is the implication of these people actually succeeding and winning office? It's troubling in part because I, you know, I'm a Minnesotan and I was talking today with a veteran journalist from the Minneapolis Star Tribune about just this. And she said, I'm worried that they could actually win. What we know is that we've, we have a public, many of whom don't know the positions that these candidates are taking, many of whom just aren't paying attention. And they're just disgruntled right now with the state of the country and the state of the world. Uh, Biden's approval rating is down around 30% right now. It's continued to drop. The good news for Democrats is that when you look at the generic ballot, Democrats are a little bit ahead, somewhere between 17 and 20% of those who say they disapprove of Biden, say they'll vote for Democrats. But we don't know how long that will continue. The results in Virginia are telling from the uh, uh, gubernatorial contest there that was sort of a harbinger of where we might be. The Democratic Party has tended to try to push the more extreme candidates. You know, it's the traditional way that if you end up with people who are so far outside the mainstream, you've got a better chance of beating them. We saw that some years ago in Indiana, where you had an extreme candidate and Democrats were thrilled to have that candidate. And even in a Republican state, he lost. That doesn't happen anymore. The tribalism has taken over so much that people vote for horrible candidates if it's a member of their tribe and a whole lot of other voters are just going to say, throw the rascals out. So our hope is that they get trounced, which is a long shot to say the least this time. If they win the House and or the Senate, if they win some of these races for governor, for lieutenant governor, for attorney general, attorneys general, for secretary of state, their incentives to try and clean their house and move back to being more of a plainly conservative but mainstream reasonable party, those odds 
are very much changed if they manage to prevail. Just to go back also now to Maryland, they haven't called some of the more high-profile Democratic gubernatorial nominees because of some complications with polls and a lot of mail-in ballots. But even there, where you had some high-profile names, and to your point, a Larry Hogan kind of endorsed person against a Trump person, some real potential contentious races, 17% voter turnout. Norm, I, you know, we'll see what the breakdowns are along party lines, but that, and I've been watching the, you know, we watched some of the other primaries very closely. We've not seen turnout to your point that people don't even know what's at stake, don't even realize it's an election day. It just kind of rocks me deeply to my core. And, and I don't know if, um, Joe Biden got COVID, but was in the midst of doing this kind of grip and grin tour in the United States. Harris is on, I think, what's being dubbed as like a basically a three day all call out for polls and elections tour herself. And what will come of it, Norm? Like we're not, I just, so any, any words matter listeners who have been active in their local election board or have just even volunteered to be part of elections best thing that we can do is actually just educate and put turnout. I don't care what party even at this point, because we are losing the very kind of fundamentals of the democratic process and the Matt Burks of the world are winning. I have to say that a good part of the problem here, Kavita, is the press corps itself. It's one thing to have a Fox propaganda machine, which is there and which is framing this in a fashion that basically gives even more legitimacy to the more radical and extreme candidates. And obviously, we see the same thing with talk radio. But it's the mainstream press as well, which continues to try to normalize the abnormal. I've seen so many stories, for example, about how Ron DeSantis is the Republican of the future without noting that he is much more like Viktor Orban in the way he approaches politics and policy than he is like, say, uh, his predecessor, uh, Jeb Bush. And the same is true of Glenn Youngkin, who is a Trumpist and racist and radical. You look at some of the appointments he's making now to boards in Virginia. It was pretty obvious, but the press corps treated him as this breath of fresh air. I was particularly upset by a column that David Brooks did just this past week or so, in which he was saying we need a completely different kind of candidate. We have to have somebody who emerges in a different way. He pointed to a lot of poll results. But then as he looked at where the two parties are, he framed the Republican Party this way. The Republicans used to be the party of business, but now they are emerging as a multiracial working class party as if this was a traditional normal party that was just changing its base, but in a very positive way. There was nothing in this column about the kinds of things that we've been talking about. And while it's true that, you know, columnists don't have the same traction that they might have had 30 or 40 years ago, when you get something like that from a prominent figure in the New York Times, it resonates more broadly. And it sends the kinds of signals to the rest of journalism that you treat this as normal and that you focus on the horse races. And that's what we're going to see more of. It's going to be, can Westmore win without focusing on what happened if Cox, the Republican, actually did win? 
Well, and Norm, we'll get into this uh, a little bit later in our bonus content, but part of why you can tell I'm slightly obsessed with the Joe O'Day race in Senate in Colorado is the Democratic Party poured a ton of money into propping up the incredibly crazy Trump endorsed Ron Hanks to actually tamp down what was a very obvious kind of support, even from moderate Democrats and many Republicans in the state of Colorado for Joe O'Day, who's a kind of a unique, refreshing voice of, hey, listen, it's not my business to talk about when women should have their access to reproductive rights. That's their business. And so it's also Democrat strategy. David Brooks is kind of not paying attention, but neither are some of the Democrat strategists who have been pouring millions into the propping up to your point, like the media, ironically. You know, this is a wake up call for uh, the Democratic Party, though. How are you going to spend your money, first of all? One of the things that's a problem, too, is you see a ton of money coming into candidates running against horrible people, but who don't have any chance of winning because the districts or states are firmly red. Then you get this money poured into trying to prop up the crazy candidates. And if some of them win, the consequences are going to be disastrous. But it's also a wake-up call for how you're going to run and what you're going to do. And when I see a Senate that is saying, you know, we've got so much to do, I don't know if we can get to votes, for example, as the House has just done, on contraception, on same-sex marriage. If you don't make this contrast and educate a public about what the consequences are if these people gain power, regain power, and take the reins of power, it's political malpractice, but it's also incredibly dangerous. And some of this has to start at the top. It has to start with the president. So, Norm, as we talk about Democrats and having to kind of face especially the Democratic Senate, uh, who no doubt will take their August recess, as they usually do, and kind of push to the back a number of issues. You still, to this day, do not hear like a full-throated rallying cry from like Democratic Senate, Democratic Congress, with the exception of, you know, AOC and a couple of colleagues who really were probably the loudest voices before and kind of post-SCOTUS decisions. And yet you have no reminder. I have yet to hear any Democratic senator, including Chuck Schumer, coming in with their whiteboard as a reminder of how the GOP has voted on not just reproductive rights, voting rights, access for seniors uh, in Medicare to hearing aids. Give me an example. And why is that not the drumbeat? Stunning. Just stunning that that's not part of the conversation. And that Democrats have to decide what they're going to run on, and they haven't. They also have to decide whether they believe that this is an urgent existential threat right now. And when you say, you know, we're going to take a two-week recess um, around July 4th, and then when we come back, I don't think we can do nights and weekends. Uh, and, you know, some of the members who are up for re-election want to go back home. But if you don't signal to the country what the contrast is, what the threat is, how they voted, that it's not just a theoretical thing, they've made it clear where they're headed, you're doomed. And 
you know, at the same time, as you've suggested, you want to hold votes that force the Republicans to take a stand, something that goes either in the direction of where the public broadly is or appeasing that narrow radical base. And what we're seeing now, and we saw this, for example, the House just had a vote on codifying the right to contraception, and all but eight Republicans voted no. So the idea that was raised that most people dismissed, oh, they're not going to come back to the Supreme Court and do away with Griswold, even though Clarence Thomas said it ought to be on the agenda. And now we see that for the overwhelming majority of Republicans, it is on their agenda. And you need to have those votes, but then follow it with a campaign, a big, vigorous campaign that holds them to account. If you don't, they're going to prevail and they're going to prevail because the press corps is not going to hold them to account. It's pretty clear. Yeah, you're seeing this play out, by the way, with climate change, right? If it weren't for uh, President Biden getting COVID and kind of being benched, so to speak, I think you saw what I would say were some of his baby steps in Massachusetts uh, this past week, trying to basically salvage the climate agenda, which, by the way, got completely derailed by, guess who, Joe Banchin. No, no surprise there. And, you know, starting with like a series of very modest actions that are completely short of not just what scientists would recommend, but what any Democrats that have been very active in this area. And what's amazing to me, by the way, what in D.C., we had what record heat. There's a heat advisory. The U.K. temperatures are rising in such a way that you couldn't ask for, I hate to say it, a better setting in which to highlight some of the issues with climate change. But You know, you have Ed Markey and you have a couple of like Democrats just highlighting the congressional obstruction on this issue. But now it seems like the media is more than happy to tilt the responsibility to Biden because he made an announcement saying, look, if Congress won't act, then I will do it. So what's the buzz? What is Biden going to do and how And he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't now? And where should the action energy have placed an action that should be the negative emotion should be placed on the GOP? Massachusetts, interestingly enough, in our kind of opening of talking about Republicans, I'm sure you saw like the I'm sure you saw that chart. I used to work with Charlie Baker, actually have a high degree of respect for him, the, the current governor. But you, you will recall that Massachusetts, in a very interesting way, had their Republican nominees for governor move away from any mention of Charlie Baker, Massachusetts GOP convention tilting again towards the Trump endorsed candidate. Yet Charlie Baker, as a person, remains incredibly popular in that state. But the like kind of the outcomes of these elections, to your point, in states like Massachusetts, are absolutely frightening. And I'm not sure how to anticipate the destruction that could come if state houses, gubernatorial races, kind of run to the run to the direction that right now actually seems plausible for many states. I'm afraid it does. And, you know, we had this heartening development of this bipartisan group of senators come up with what is a not perfect, but reasonable and better than we expected reform of the Electoral Count Act to try and respond to the flaws in the law that uh, led us to the debacle on January 6th. But if you go through that, even as they plug some of the holes, you realize that they can't do everything. And if the Supreme Court gives more of a role to these state legislatures, 
we are going to be in a position where having a free and fair election becomes extraordinarily unlikely. And we're seeing this in states. And if some of these states where the only check on the uh, radical legislature is a governor, places like Wisconsin uh, and Michigan uh, and Pennsylvania and North Carolina, lose some of those seats and turn the uh, state completely over to these radical crazies. And the consequences in the states are going to be horrific, but they have enormous national implications for the presidency. On that note, Norm, let's wrap up the part that's available to non-members. We'll be talking about uh, Joe O'Day and some of these tensions of where Democrats should be spending their money in campaigns on our members-only segment. But it's incredibly helpful for you to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast player. We also hope you can share this episode with your friends on social media. And then if you like the subject and the episode and become a member of the DSR Network, we're running a special promotion right now, and it is a perfect time to put your dollars to work to get more information, more content, and a bonus segment where we'll be talking not only about the threat to Democrat and civil liberties, but beyond that, why anybody, even moderate Republicans who have just snubbed their nose and tried to look the other way, really should take a closer look. The Words Matter podcast is a production of the DSR Network. Executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Putnor, and the producer of Words Matter is Grant Paver. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on July 29th. See you then. Welcome back, DSR members. Here is a clip of the debate between Senate candidate Joe O'Day, Republican, and Ron Hanks, also a Republican challenger, who were vying to be the nominee for Senate in Colorado. This is the incredibly unexpectedly heated race coming up between incumbent Michael Bennett, Democrat, who has enjoyed a reputation as a moderate Democrat in this purple state, and Joe O'Day, who is painting a new portrait. You just heard from Norm and myself, a spirited conversation around fringe candidates, how they're not so fringe anymore. But the reason we wanted to tease out Joe O'Day a bit more is because he represents what actually could be if the Republican Party could understand a bit more about where the majority of Americans are, representative of a new age Republican that could be not just a threat to Michael Bennett's seat in the Senate in Colorado but could serve as a template for the rest of the country. And this is just a very interesting clip where you'll first hear from Ron Hanks, who lost this primary, and then you'll hear from Joe O'Day, who is up for challenge against Michael Bennett. Mr. O'Day, in light of your recent radio interviews where you publicly stated on KMUS radio that if a vote to codify Roe v. Wade was in front of you, you would probably vote to make it law. That makes your abortion position the same as the unrepentant pro-abortion Nancy Pelosi. Do you think the archbishops are wrong? What do you say to them in reply? And what do you say to the Catholics that are very upset with a Republican calling himself a pro-life conservative, yet would codify Roe v. Wade? Look, Brown, I was very clear. I stated my position and where I'm at. Uh, my Catholic faith is my Catholic faith, and I'll choose to be Catholic the way I'm going to be Catholic. I'm telling you right now, I've been personally pro-life 
But I also know that we need balance. We need balance in America, and that's where I'm at. So this is about a segment where I am just taking the lead. Norm is uh, tending to some very important debate matters that he is very sad to miss. Just for some background, Joe Day actually beat Ron Hanks, the uh, who was a 2020 election denier, uh, something that's been a theme in what we talked about earlier, uh, who opposes abortion without any exceptions, even for rape and incest, and was at one point thought to be a viable threat against Michael Bennett. But in comes construction company CEO Joe O'Day, who actually overcame $4 million in counter spending by Democratic Colorado, which is a group that uh, actually started to question his conservative credentials and actually started to signal boost right wing positions taken by Hanks in order to divide the electorate. And interestingly enough, by comparison, according to an ad tracking firm, O'Day spent $1.4 million on ads and Hanks spent a whopping $0. And it's just a reflection, these tactics that Democrats used actually trying to deny a conservative's credentials and potentially even amplify somebody like Ron Hanks has been a bit of a standard playbook in Washington, D.C. and across the country that worked in previous elections. Where Joe O'Day, and you heard in the clip with Hanks, has really kind of gone in a very different way is that he has taken on emphasizing what I would say are more traditional Reagan issues of the Republican Party, jobs, inflation, the national debt. And Hanks obviously talks about those issues, but his focus has always been, and you heard in the clip a bit of an insinuation, he has always focused on issues with the color of debunking uh, the election validity in 2020 and perpetuating Donald Trump's lies. So this was a very interesting debate that occurred between Hanks and O'Day. And in fact, in kicking off his campaign, another video clip is Hanks actually shooting at an electronic copier that was dressed up as a Democratic voting machine. So it's very clear to Norm and myself to see how Hanks was just an odious character but always a potential threat, but one that the Democratic Party in Colorado, a purple state, had thought that they could use to really amplify the soundness and the reasonableness of Michael Bennett. Where things started to really change and take shape, and I think why O'Day is a serious threat to Bennett, is not just on his position on abortion. And for reference sake, abortion is currently legal in Colorado. And that was actually thanks to a Democratic bill in the state legislature that was passed actually to get ahead of the anticipated reversal of Roe v. Wade. Wouldn't that have been nice if we had made sure we could do that at the federal level? However, taking some of uh, Hanks's words, Hanks himself identifies as a conservative. And he said that uh, this in an interview, not just in the debate clip we heard, but he's been asked many times from Republicans about his views on abortion. And in the comment from his debate, he's almost mirrored these exact same words. It's not coming from U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and this leftist progressive cabal that does not believe life begins at conception. And he does not favor abortion bans early in pregnancy, but supports the exceptions in cases of rape, incest, and certain health circumstances. And I think what O'Day does to bring a different color to this is not only tackling the very, I think, unspoken issue around reproductive justice that on its surface, that people truly do not understand that the majority of abortions, 94% of abortions occur before 12 weeks. 
And so whether it's trigger ban laws set at six to eight weeks, or even people who want you to perceive that there are so many abortions taking place in the second or third trimester of a pregnancy, here you have Joe O'Day, who is basically saying, listen, I understand that the majority of abortions occur early in a pregnancy. There absolutely should be exceptions in cases of rape and incest and health conditions, and just offers an incredibly sound rationale for why it is not just a Democrat leftist kind of concept, and it's not necessarily a stance of the Republican Party about where a woman's rights to reproductive freedoms lie. So Joe O'Day, the combination of kind of that moderate or more conservative fiscal policy, conservative social policies, put up stack to stack against Michael Bennett, and it is incredibly hard to distinguish who's the Democrat and who's the Republican. Now, Joe O'Day, so part of why I think that this is going to be a pretty close and contentious race that'll come down to money is going to be kind of the fabric of what this does to the Senate. The Senate is holding on, obviously, by a slim majority now. There are races that are expected to flip and potentially go by way of Democrats, offering a chance to actually have more than a 50-50 split in the majority. But Michael Bennett's seat is one of those that must be kept in order to retain even the ability to go 50-50 or stronger. And so the Bennett team has been trying to distinguish themselves by saying, listen, Joe Day doesn't actually believe in reproductive access. He is just a supporter of, quote unquote, some abortion rights, not anywhere near what the Democratic Party believes. And I think it's going to be a hard narrative when Joe comes forward and O'Day has, as he has in the debate clips you heard and in the public. And he basically comes up and says, listen, I know my position on abortion is not the same as all of yours. And then he starts talking about bans on late term abortions. And he talks about supporting the Hyde Amendment, which is a ban on government funding of abortions, by the way, which has been law throughout several Democratic administrations and several times when the Democrats were in the majority in both Congress, the Senate and the White House. But that ultimately, his powerful words are the decision to terminate a pregnancy is between a person and their God. And that word person is even a nod to some of the backlash that Democrats and liberals and progressive have received when they've taken identification that gender identity can be fluid and that this is not just a women's rights issue. And so All of these factors combined, in my mind, put O'Day into an incredibly small, but possibly most threatening type of Republican, because he stands out from the Republican Party, in which abortion, opposition to any reproductive freedoms has almost become like a bedrock principle, sacrosanct. And he is incredibly conservative on the issues that I think are Americans are feeling their pain points right now. Nobody has to look further than Joe Biden's approval ratings, in particular on economic issues, to see how even a countervailing voice that offers any sort of insight to improving the economy, making jobs uh, easier and accessible for Americans and keeping them in the country versus offshoring. And then finally, actually an explanation, which is I think where O'Day shines the most. He's able to take his CEO businessman roots combined with some financial acumen that you don't often see in some of these kind of fresh, newly promoted candidates for large races such as the United States Senate, and actually explain things to people in a way that seems like he is one of them, and he is also yet a leader. And if the Republican Party could actually find a way to see that there are probably more Joe O'Days 
male, female, however they identify, then there might actually be not just a legitimate fight between many of our purple or blue states, so to speak, but probably a legitimate fight that could be mounted at the presidential race. So instead of a DeSantis candidate in 24, if you think about advancing the clock, what would it look like to put somebody like O'Day up against a Biden? And and that's not, obviously not going to happen. But that's the calculus that I think the party is missing. And I think that the Democrats, just the reason I mentioned the ad spending is because it's an incredibly important fact to think about shifting the Democratic strategy. Trying to divide Republican candidates, identifying falsehoods may seem like a legitimate template and a play that a playbook that could have been used over and over again. But I think the playbooks have changed. And if the candidates change and go by the way of O'Day, Democrats are going to have to actually stand out on what they stand for and probably be a little bit less divisive amongst the Republicans and a little bit easier to consolidate amongst the Democrats.